0: Welcome to Structural Shifts by Aperture, a bi-weekly show that radically reimagines the future of work, society, and business. We take a devil's advocate approach to exploring the massive shifts transforming our economies and our world, and our guests are not afraid to challenge the status quo. To learn more about Aperture, visit aperture.co. Ian Hathaway says that when it comes to his work, his soul's mission is to help entrepreneurs improve their odds of succeeding, regardless of where they want to live. Today, your host Ben Robinson sits down with Ian to talk about the new book he co-authored called The Startup Community Way, a book on entrepreneurial ecosystems. In this episode, Ben and Ian discuss what governments are getting wrong when they try to foster entrepreneurship and how they can create better outcomes, why entrepreneurship can lead to bigger and better outcomes than direct engagement in politics, why entrepreneurs are going to have more opportunities than ever during the pandemic and after it, and more. Ian is a senior executive director at Techstars, and he is also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a co-founder and board member of the Center for American Entrepreneurship. Enjoy the show.
1: So, Ian, thanks very much for coming on the Structural Shifts podcast. We're going to cover in quite a lot of detail your new book. But before we get started, I just wanted to ask you like a broader question, which is, in what sorts of health do you think American entrepreneurship is today? Because we sort of get the impression, right? Because there have been so many world-beating tech companies that have come out of Silicon Valley that everything is rosy. Would you agree with that statement?
2: So I view entrepreneurship much more broadly than Silicon Valley, for sure. In my framework, I think of the difference between, you know, a small business owner and an entrepreneur is the ambition to grow. Right. That's much that's much broader than most people think about in in tech. But to stick to the to the tech and venture-backed world, US market has a long tail, right? A substantial portion of Startup activity, venture backed startup activity happens, of course, in the Bay Area, but an even larger portion happens outside of it. And in those markets, they're not, you know, the capital efficiency, maybe is what we're talking about here, um, is much better. So Silicon Valley is just a completely different place, even within the context of the United States.
1: But it's, I was reading some statistics, actually, the number of new companies that's Getting started each year has actually been going down, right? So I'm just I'm just wondering, you know, do, like is do we have the impression that maybe entrepreneurship in America is kind of doing better than it actually is?
2: Well, so the business formation statistics, which you're talking about, are you know it's covering business owners of all growth ambitions all sectors right that's been on a steady decline since the late 1970s and in fact that's a trend that has been carried across all of the OECD i believe that's more demographically driven than anything the as population growth declines and as society ages business formation rates overall are reduced now businesses are also getting much bigger. right? There's no rule that says if the business formation rate is subdued, that businesses must get bigger. Um, And overall, the average business is getting much bigger. There's a huge debate happening on what the implications of that are. I think it varies substantially across sectors. But one of the things that I and some other researchers documented back in 2014 is that the business formation rate, even in the high tech sectors, is declining as well, which will startle a lot of people. But it's just because that denominator is so resilient and the companies are getting so big.
1: What was the rationale for writing this book? Yeah. So going
2: back to... I guess I should go all the way back to 2012. My co-author, Brad Feld, wrote a book called Startup Communities, yep, uh, documenting his experience as an entrepreneur turned venture capitalist and community builder while in Boulder. He moved to Boulder in 1995, didn't really know anybody, had a successful career in Boston as an entrepreneur, started investing in the Valley, New York, East Coast, and wanted to just get involved in Boulder. There was a lot happening, but it wasn't really concentrated. And so he spent you know the next couple of decades doing that work. He felt that you know boulder was unique in terms of the entrepreneurial output that it has achieved and that that collaborative spirit that community was a big part of that reason so he wrote that book we started talking in 2016 about ways we might work together and one of the things we discussed was an evolution on his startup communities book and the frameworks that were included in that given that my background you know before working on a full-time basis with startups, as I do today, and big tech companies, as I did, you know, over the last decade, I was a full-time researcher. So, I have a research background and economics background. And that was one of the appeals, I believe, for Brad was, hey, look, we've got, you know, knowledge and interest in startups and ecosystems. We have different frameworks in our heads. Let's bring those together and see what comes out of it. And so that was kind of the script, and we began work in the spring of 2017. We had a bunch of fits and starts, um, a couple of hiatuses, non-linear progressions, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. And the book was finally published this last summer. So three years in total from start to finish.
1: Maybe let's talk about what the first book is about, right? Which is principally about the boulder thesis, right? So would you would you mind just introducing us to that? The four principles of the. The boulder thesis and creating a, a community.
2: Yeah. So the boulder thesis is simple, but not easy. First of all, the entrepreneurs must lead the community. Secondly, the the entrepreneurs must have a long term commitment. So originally in the book that said a twenty year view, that's evolved to a twenty year view from today, which means it's always twenty years ahead of you. So, so be thinking in generations, not in you know weeks or years. The third is that it must be inclusive of anyone who wants to participate, and the fourth is that it must engage the entire entrepreneurial stack, which I interpret uh, as a derivation of inclusivity. So people from various domains, roles, experience levels, and so on, and that that engagement is constant.
1: You know, when you talk about a long-term commitment, so you know, generational commitment. And, and you yourself acknowledge that you know these things are hard and the outcomes are uncertain. I mean, how difficult does that make it to recruit you know the the key actors for 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 a startup community?
2: It's very difficult um, because most people don't work on those time cycles, but there's yeah. nothing that can be done about it because these long these long feedback cycles are inherent. That's one of the reasons why we wrote this this new book which we can dig into that a little bit more and why, why we wrote it in the way we did, which is explaining these systemic properties of startup communities and entrepreneurial ecosystems. But taking a quick step back, it's also why Brad emphasized why entrepreneurs should, should lead the community. That's not to say that non-entrepreneurs cannot be involved in building startup communities, helping founders, and in fact, playing leadership roles right in many nascent communities it's these non-entrepreneurial community builders whether as a side hustle as their full-time job that are catalyzing efforts because entrepreneurs are heads down doing what entrepreneurs yeah. do which is building their businesses so it's not to say that, that that non-entrepreneurs don't have a role but it's that the entrepreneurs who are committed to being in a place for a long period of time building their businesses there knowing that it's a you know even in a successful outcome, it's ten to twenty years before that liquidity event occurs, and that those resources can get recycled back into whatever comes next. That's just the reality of the situation, and so that's why that's why the emphasis on on entrepreneurs leading, not only because the entrepreneurs are the ultimate end users, right, of a, of a startup ecosystem, right? If they're if they're not benefiting from it or participating or engaging, then it's not valuable to them, which happens in many communities, but it really is an acknowledgement of the long-term commitment that's required. Now, to build on that quickly, one of the things we talk about is the difference between the community and the ecosystem. Quickly, I'll just say the startup community is really, if if you think about a city as a, a series of systems, right? So, the startup community is the beating heart of entrepreneurship in a city. It's really the founders, it's the people who work with them on a consistent daily basis, you know, whether as their full-time job or maybe something that they do outside of their job. Maybe they're doing maybe they're mentors, maybe they're angel investors or something like that. That's it's having a firm understanding of what the entrepreneurs do and what they need, but it's it's more than that. It's also this kind of kin- a kinship connection, right? It's a common identity It's, you know, kind of a love of place and that sort of thing. The ecosystem is a broader construct, which is, of course, all of these resources and actors who bring them that can either accelerate or impede the progress of entrepreneurship in a community. They have different organizational structures that align or are misaligned to varying degrees with entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial communities. They have different incentives, right? So governments people want governments to engage a great deal in the building of ecosystems which makes sense because you know ecosystems are sort of and startup communities are sort of like a public good for the benefit of entrepreneurs yeah. but governments have a much bigger mandate right so their mandate is typically around creating jobs and having economic vitality and safe and enjoyable cities and so because of not just the not just the hierarchical top-down structure of governments not being aligned with the with the behavior of startups and startup communities it's also very different incentives and so back to this long-term arc this concept we discussed is community ecosystem fit and why developing a strong startup community must precede the development of a robust ecosystem Part of the motivation behind that was something we observed in many cities, which is you pull in these ecosystem actors, whether it's, you know, potential angel investors, corporations, governments, so on, their response was, well, you know, the entrepreneurs aren't any good. You know, you can you can tell me all day long I should be more collaborative and helpful and focused on the needs of the entrepreneurs, but all the entrepreneurs here suck. So why would I want to do that? Now we can push back on that and say, look, well. You know what are you doing to help that situation? But fair point. And so, when once the once the startup community is producing a high rate of companies that are interesting, it then becomes a resource attractor that pulls those things in. And so that's a very long answer to your question about you know how do we come how do we get around that this need for a long term view? And my answer is that the entrepreneurs will be the ones who are producing will. will Create the interest by producing interesting companies.
1: Is it not a slightly catch twenty two situation where in, in in a new when you're trying to create a new startup community where you don't have successful entrepreneurs? Because you know in, in a way you know the community depends on being led by successful entrepreneurs, and you know and if they, if they don't exist then it makes it harder to create that 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 community, right? So is that is that not somewhat of a sort? of... I mean, how do you overcome that challenge?
2: The mistake that's often made is looking at the factors that currently exist in successful ecosystems and equating that with what it takes to get there, right? These, these, The resources, the actors, they co-evolve, right? Along with success. We're going through the early days of a boom cycle, right? If you believe there has been this outward shift in technological opportunities, there has been, you know... A shift in certainly the supply of venture capital into these ecosystems. But these are emergent systems. And so, we can't just force success. We can't say, okay, these seem to be the ingredients of success. Let's just place them here and then innovation will happen. The reality is what's valuable will emerge. There will be certain principles that apply across geographies, but it truly will be unique to each time and place that's an inherently uncertain process. And when that gets choked off, progress is stifled. So, that's the frustrating thing. The Catch-22 is really about that we want to manufacture success, but it's the manufacturing, the attempted manufacturing of success, which is actually what can impede success from emerging from the bottom up, principally led by the entrepreneurs.
1: I want to talk a bit about what's different or what's or what changed versus the 2012 book, right? So you talked a bit about, you know, how you wanted to um, talk more about what you'd learned from Boulder. But I think also new, right? This, this whole notion of of an adaptive ecosystem is, is new in the second book. And then also, I think you took a much broader lens, right? So you wanted to look at the startup community and ecosystem through a broader lens, which included, you know, some of the geopolitical events that we've lived through in the interim, right? So can you just talk about that you know what 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 evolved versus the original startup community book
2: yeah so our process is actually pleasantly recursive of a complex adaptive system right the process itself evolved our mission emerged from our process of discovery so the 2012 book was really about boulder and you know Brad's perspective of here's what the situation was, here's what we did, here's what worked, here's what didn't. Here was the outcome. Of course, with it being about one place, you know, I, I thought that book was very principles oriented. It was very actionable too. There were tangible ideas about people can go and try this thing or that thing. But because it's about one place, it's inherently limited. It was so early. I mean, Brad is really a pioneer in this thinking. And so lots of places, people in lots of places adopted the principles and the practices from that book. They found varying degrees of success with that, right? Um, because their city was so different from Boulder, and that's the, the main criticism is that look, this is an idealized state of the world. If you've been to Boulder, it's got a ama- it's teeming with talent, right? Large institutions, it has a huge entrepreneurial spirit. The community is so collaborative. I actually think the collaborative nature of the Boulder startup community is reflective of the entire Boulder community, rather than the other way around. And it's you know it's just this fantastic place. So that was kind of the main criticism. Is like, look, try going to Paris where people undermine each other, right? Nicolas Colon, our mutual friend, has said, look, uh, he wrote a book review of of the startup community way, saying, you know, there's kind of this kumbaya spirit uh, emanating from Brad, and then also Brad and Ian, which didn't really apply in in Paris, and so. So that's that's fair, but I still think even if you view Boulder, which is not perfect, as the idealized state of collaboration, there's still a lot that can be learned from that. Why the evolution was as more as startup communities, entrepreneurial ecosystems garnered more attention over the last decade. More, the the scope and scale of ecosystem actors increased. Right, governments, corporations, universities, other actors, so wow. on have been putting more resources, getting more involved in more places. And one of the things they were looking for were tangible frameworks, right? It's it's very difficult to convince those actors without sufficient evidence and theory and frameworks to guide that this bottom-up approach of experimentation, learning, adaptation, which is so familiar to entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial community builders that that's actually the way to do this work because it feels a little hand wavy, right? It it feels kind of like it's bullshit, you know? And so our mission was to say, you know, and I think that's part of the appeal of working with me, someone with an economics and research background to say, you know, look, let's dress this up with some data. Let's dress this up with some more theoretical frameworks. But, and that's kind of was the initial mission was to do that. But through, I guess, maybe we were four or five months in, we had 30,000 words written. And just think of it as, you know, Startup Communities 2012 book with more evidence, theory, frameworks from economics, sociology, economic geography, that sort of thing. But it was, it was still a linear progression from the first book. As I talked to more people, I realized that it was just this complete disconnect Almost of mental models about bottom up versus top down, you know, planning and execution versus experimentation and adaptation. And it was so we realized that we were on a different mission. I don't have a background in systems science, Uh, my background is in political economy and economics. And, but I discovered complex systems along the way. And as soon as I, you know, having t- talked to lots of people, reviewed lots of work, as soon as that framework came into my mind, I realized immediately that this is what needed to be the centerpiece of our book to explain the inherent uncertainty, the nonlinear behavior, right? The uniqueness of each place and why that presents these challenges. So, we, through the First thirty thousand words or so that we wrote away, and we began anew, and so that sent us down this path of, you know, explaining the behavior of startup communities and entrepreneurial ecosystems through the lens of complex adaptive systems.
1: So, trying to draw a parallel, right? So, so in nature, you know, you can't control ecosystems, right? Oh. You can you, you can merely sort of seek to to guide them, to influence them, right? So, and, and this is very much the same sort of philosophy you take with with startup communities and, and the, you know, the attendant ecosystems. But but what, what are these sort of equivalents of, you know, how do you give, you know, the an ecosystem, the sort of the energy, the nutrients, the oxygen to, to grow? What can be done that's sort of replicable across different places?
2: This is not to say that the inputs don't matter, right? It's clearly, you know, we, you know, it's an empirical reality that, entrepreneurship especially in the knowledge economy and especially if we want to talk about tech and venture backed entrepreneurship is concentrated in certain types of places right it's very the distribution is very spiky that's an empirical reality it is beneficial to have a density of highly educated ambitious people right it's advantageous to be around you know other high tech Company, institutions, whether they're businesses or universities or so on, those things matter, but they're not enough. What our point is, is it's about the integration of those elements, right? If I viewed the process of starting and scaling a high potential company as a search, not not entirely, but to a large degree, it's a, it's a search for the resources you need to succeed. Many of them exist outside the boundaries of the company, right? So whether it's key, a key senior hire, right? It's early stage mentoring, right? It's that we talk about you know, investment capital a lot, right? It's a relationship with a customer. All these things are dependent on int- the exchange of intangibles, right? Fundamentally underpinned by relationships, which require trust. And so what we're really talking about when we talk about integration is building better relationships. And so one of the points that we make throughout is, and this is the part that's empowering, especially for people in places that don't have all these resources, you know, where people do have ambitions and they do want to be better and they want to stay where they are, is by building a community of like-minded people who are committed to a cause entrepreneurship, you know, technology, they're committed to that place. If they could be committed to each other, create a critical mass of knowledge sharing, support learning, sharing contacts, expanding networks, we believe that the odds of success for any one company will be greater. Right? It doesn't guarantee success. It also doesn't guarantee success to be in Silicon Valley, right? it just improves the odds of success. I mean, maybe we could d- debate that today if that's like turned negative, right? <laughs> um, but But that's the fundamental point we're making is you can improve the odds that your company will succeed by being more collaborative and engaging in a community regardless of where you live.
1: And how do you get some of those stakeholders to be collaborative and to not want to take control? Because as you said, right, you know, they're not the principal actors, the principal actors or the, or the leaders have to be the startups, but you still need the participation of, of governments, universities, organizations that are typically very sort of top-down driven, very hierarchical. You know, how do, how do you get them to behave in the appropriate collaborative manner to really help the ecosystem?
2: Well, it helps to have individual champions from those places and... This is uh, a a subtle nuance that's missed. Sometimes it's a key individual or individuals who drive the whole thing in a community. Fred Turman's role in, you know, from Stanford and Silicon Valley has been talked about a lot. Brad Feld, honestly, in Boulder is sort of a local hero. There are a number of stories throughout. There's even one from the Viking Range Company. I don't know if. You're familiar with that, but high-end ranges in the United States, small town in Mississippi, there's a famous story about, you know, how um, the founder of that company created an entire local services economy to support high high-end families who would come to purchase these ranges. Right? It was this, this role of a local champion can be really important, whether that's in an official capacity or non-official capacity. Too often, though, however, these institutions are disconnected from the entrepreneurial community right University towns are a great one in particular even in Boulder which is a city of a hundred thousand people it's fairly densely populated for a small having a small city vibe the university is just adjacent to downtown but in my experience it's very disconnected from the startup community so in you know an ecosystem ranking or a research report it might say well this is an example of a research, Um, institution that's feeding entrepreneurship. In my opinion, it doesn't. So it's more about the talent that it's producing, right? It's drawing interesting people to the community. It's driving economic growth. But I wouldn't say that that university and in countless other places are driving the entrepreneurial community. And in worse instances, I've seen in a bunch of especially smaller, less developed ecosystems, there are what I'll broadly call entrepreneurial supports, these are innovation centers, incubators, co-working spaces and so on. They're almost always funded by the government and the people leading it have no entrepreneurial experience. What they have experience doing is extracting or I should say getting these initiatives funded by government and maintaining those relationships they at best are irrelevant and at worst harmful. They suck the oxygen out of the community and they can be actually predatory uh, to entrepreneurs in too many places. Going back to one of the first things we talked about, which is if you live in an environment like that, the best thing you can do is to build a critical mass of people who don't behave that way, right? To help each other. One of the things that I've found even in more transactional... I mean, I know it's I know it's very easy. The American way is to say, hey, be informal, be collaborative, be helpful. It's very, that it can be seen as a naive view towards many cultures. But what I have seen is that when people do embody those um, values, being helpful to others without expectation of something in, mater- in return, being less transactional um, at all times. That, that kind of that shifts the dynamic and people see they start to think in positive some terms right like oh well if that person does well that's good for me too right this is going to grow our ecosystem overall and that's a good outcome for me as well and so you know my message would be entrepreneurs creating a critical mass in spite of those obstacles right um, it'd be great to unlock the the power, the resources that some of those larger institutions have, but you don't need it. And one of the ways to get around that is by creating a critical mass, creating successes, and then those larger actors have to uh, adapt or die because they're no longer the most important force in that ecosystem.
1: Do you think it's as present now as it, as it was historically? I mean, is, is it more difficult to find people that will will act in, in that way in that with that level of sort of generosity?
2: I believe the startup communities in which I operate. So this could be a biased view, <laughs> um, just because of my network. But I find that the entrepreneurs are fairly collaborative, right? Startup the startup community community is fairly collaborative, more so than obviously many, you know, many other sectors of the economy. I do think that mentorship is one of the ways, and you know, that this has manifest. I think mentorship is. Um, around entrepreneurship has been adopted, you know, pretty much worldwide at this point.
1: You know, you're doing, you're giving advice to, to governments around ecosystem development, and what should they be doing? Because, because you've already said, right, they should not be necessarily investing in or funding incubators and accelerators. So, so what what should a government do to, to foster? Uh, startup community and and an ecosystem.
2: Well, it's not that they shouldn't do those things. It's the way in which they do those things, right? so the the first order of business is figuring out what is needed. I can't tell you how many times you know, whether it's from a mayor in the u s. to a minister you know of innovation in country X, y, Z, that says, oh, we're doing this, this, and this. And the question I always ask is, well, you know, where did that idea come from? What do the entrepreneurs think of that? And they never know. They've never taken the time to say, well, what actually is needed here? And what can we do to, to, to seed that? So, that's the first principle, which is, again, it's super simple, but it's not easy because governments yeah. aren't used to acting in that way. The second thing is to not... It's not to... It's not that they shouldn't fund accelerators, incubators, so on. Like, actually, there's a super important role for government to catalyze those things, especially early on. But don't do it in perpetuity. Let the private sector fill in eventually, and make sure that entrepreneurs are involved. Um, I've done some survey work on a bunch of different dimensions, and the number one thing, at least in the way that I've structured these surveys, where I'm I'm kind of generalizing between positive, and negative. On the negative side, the number one thing is not involving entrepreneurs with any of the decision-making process and how money is spent. That doesn't mean you're you want to have an entrepreneur necessarily who's the CEO of a, you know, an innovation center, right? A co-working space, something like that. But you should have entrepreneurs involved with the design and from the governance perspective on the board. That way, we ensure that it's relevant um, over time the entrepreneurs the successful entrepreneurs who are in that community should begin to fund those initiatives otherwise again they're not valuable so that i think is more kind of the role of government right be smart be agile fund many things not just one thing that tends to happen as well you know they'll pick winners and you know everything goes to this they they try to consolidate but actually i think a better thing to do is fund maybe a handful of things um, over a two or three year period and then let them be self-sustaining at that point, see what see what works, see what doesn't. Also think think about stage. So it feels to me like there's been an almost an oversaturation of very early stage um, entrepreneurial support, in most places in the world, I think you know we saw the S curve adoption for accelerators. Um, now there's pre-accelerators, pre-pre-accelerators, and and I think that's fantastic, right? I think we have more experiments that are going on. But what these, what each city is going to find is that about 10% of the companies will create 90% of the value. So it's the ones who have achieved that product market fit who have the traction and maybe are unclear about navigating international markets or what it means to be a CEO in a company that goes from 10 to 50 people overnight, that sort of thing, there's a huge underprovision of that. And I think that's where the the industry of entrepreneurship support needs to really fill in that gap because
1: we haven't seen that yet. You yourself in the book, you say, you know, what, the easiest things to measure are the things that are least important, right? So... But you've got a government that's clearly very keen to demonstrate progress, very keen to to demonstrate they're getting return on investment. So how do you get them to, like, A, you know, think about the right metrics for success and B, to to apply, you know, a a long-term vantage point to this when, again, you know, they're hungry for short-term success?
2: Well, the first thing that I do is explain to them that any metrics must be oriented around whatever the program's goal is. So... If their, if their ultimate goal is about job creation, wealth creation, okay, I understand that. But too many people will sell them a solution saying, oh yeah, this thing we're gonna do, this program that is supporting entrepreneurship will create X jobs, right? Oftentimes governments will fund initiatives and the key metric is how many jobs did this create at this point in time, which is the wrong metric. What I might be more interested in is how did those programs, what kind of lift did they give to the marginal company who participated, right? How did, let's say, a top of funnel community catalyst program, what kind of relationships spun out of that, if that's kind of the goal, or what kind of people did it pull into entrepreneurship? So making sure that it's structured around what the programs actually do, having a clear sort of value chain that explains. Okay, if 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 job creation is actually what you want, how we get there is having companies with better outcomes. Let me tell you how you do how you help companies have better outcomes and we can create that value chain, but making sure what you're measuring is actually built around the program. The other thing too is that I believe that system structure explains so much of the performance of an ecosystem. So we've been doing a bunch of network mapping exercises in a few markets where we're looking at who's influential. There's some academic research and also some policy research that supports this, that when the influential actors in an ecosystem are, entrepreneurials, are entrepreneurial, have had entrepreneurial success, or they're support organizations that are heavily influenced and or funded by entrepreneurs, the those tend to be more productive ecosystems than those with less. So there there's empirical support behind these theories that we're talking about. And so that's one of the things that that we do is we map out the ecosystem. Who are the who are the businesses that have reached scale, have had some success, and how are they integrated in? What are they connecting up with? Often what we find is that the most successful entrepreneurs are isolated. Right? They're not linking up with any of these support programs. So, the metrics in this case are outputs. How many companies participated in this program? How many people attended this event? What I want to know is, have the most impactful companies touched any of these things we're paying for? Or who who is this angel investor over here who seems to be connected to every high-impact company to come out of this community in the last 10 years? How can we engage her more in our efforts. What do they think we could be doing better? And it's it's sort of just by mapping that out and not only who the influential actors are, but how they're all connected through meaningful relationships, whether they're investment, mentorship, program participation, that explains a lot. And then you have a well-informed strategy about again, taking the system's view of how can we better integrate these things and make sure that the most productive programs have the resources they need and Maybe the ones that aren't, that are just, you know, sort of creating a lot of noise, but not producing, you know, tangible outcomes, high impact outcomes. Maybe you start winding those down and that's okay. That's normal and healthy.
1: We talked about the whole, the introduction of the whole complex adaptive systems um, framework. Uh, we've talked about developing what what was learned in the interim period. But, but the other thing that's, that strikes me as different with the second book is this, this idea of it having a sort of, you know, broader context, right? Are you looking at startup communities through a, through a, through a, a broader lens, right? Including a geopolitical one. And you, know, you talk about your experience of living in London at the time of Brexit. You know, and I, I suppose the question I wanted to ask is like, you know, you mentioned Nicola Collin, but Nic- Nicola Collin has this view that, you know, almost through entrepreneurship, you can make a bigger change than you can through engaging directly in politics, for example. So would would you say that that was a, a big motivation for writing the book? And do you subscribe to that view that entrepreneurship can lead to bigger and better outcomes than a direct engagement in politics?
2: Well, I'll answer the second one first, which is absolutely yes. (laughs) In fact, you might say that the most powerful political actors in the United States where I'm from are the people who've had the major entrepreneurial successes. So kind of reverse engineering that. You know, I've always been fascinated by geography. You know, I'm committed to... Entrepreneurship, working with entrepreneurs, writing about entrepreneurship, um, explaining about you know the importance of it to economic vitality and you know to vibrant cities. I've just always been interested in these things. But it's also personal to me. I although I've spent most of my adult life in California, well, I went to school in Chicago, spent time there, California, washington, d c, London. I spent a little time in Geneva. We talked about that (laughs) a few weeks back. I grew up in a small agricultural and industrial town in the Midwest, in Ohio. It was part of the um, Detroit supply chain. And we didn't have a lot of opportunities. I was born in 1980. That's when manufacturing employment peaked in that region. We had a self-sustaining community right but i was there i was born in the beginning of the decline my father is a brilliant innovator he he has uh, no college no university degree he but he has i don't know something like 50 or 60 patents in transportation logistics and it's always been this weird thing it's kind of like i've got this you know my dad had these jobs but he had these crazy hobbies and redesigning uh, transportation, logistics, infrastructure. and But he was not successful economically in these endeavors. He was not a successful entrepreneur. And what I had thought about was, well, what if instead of being from where we were, where we lived, if we were instead from Palo Alto, California, if you just change that one piece, Would my dad have had a very different outcome? Therefore, would I have had a very different life trajectory and so on? And I think the answer is probably not 100%, you know, but I I would imagine the odds of success would have been much higher and I would like to see that equalized more. I think we're living through an era where there has been a massive proliferation of entrepreneurial high-tech activity around the world. People forget, you know, I know that Silicon Valley gets a lot of the attention, but people forget how fast activity has diffused. I did a report in 2018 um, with an urban economist named Richard Florida, where we mapped just over a decade and a half period about the spread of venture capital, which we use as a proxy for high-tech entrepreneurship. Not a perfect one by any means, but it's... It is a reliable data source for what it measures. And, you know, I guess in 1992, the US garnered something like 97% of all venture capital. It's now less than half, it's 40%. 40%. And I think, and half of that decline happened in the last seven years. So people forget how quickly this is diffusing um, in geographies, not only outside of Silicon Valley, but outside of the United States. And so, I feel like my soul's mission in this work is so that entrepreneurs, regardless of where they want to live, can improve the odds of succeeding. That doesn't guarantee they will, but if we can move the needle and so that people don't feel like they have to, you know, um, ride the train an hour and a half into London every morning just to have a job in the industry they want to work in or, you know, face exorbitant housing or wildfires in San Francisco and congestion, like... I, I hope we can move the needle on that, and so that's that's what's motivating me.
1: The neoliberal kind of supply side I- economics view was that people have to move to where the jobs are. Right, we need to get mobility of labor, but you know, but but one of the downsides is that is it's you know it's very detri- detrimental to to happiness, right? Because people have to give up their community links and so on. And so, you, what you're saying, your philosophy in life is to is to take the opportunities to the people rather than vice versa.
2: Yeah, and and, and also the reality is that. High-profile, high-tech successes happen in way more places than people realize. A successful company can be formed anywhere. The question is, how repeatable is that process, right? What happens after that success? I'll use the example of my adopted hometown where my family moved to on the central coast of California called San Luis Obispo. It's a 45,000-person town, small university, huge agricultural element beautiful kind of place where retirees and, and people on long weekend holidays like to go from San Francisco and Los Angeles in 2015 there was a company called Mindbody which had it's been a unicorn exit and prior to that venture they were the first company to really get venture funding like nothing happened and then it went from basically zero to a unicorn exit now the question is what happens next yeah. Right. So just spoke to an entrepreneur down in Orange County, California. That's for people who don't know, that's between LA and San Diego. And he was saying, We've had loads of exits, but then people don't re-engage. Right? There's no community. And so what what we're after is we're not gonna predict where the next unicorn or hundred million or five hundred million exit occurs. It's how can when they do occur, what you know, can you increase the odds that they will occur in your place? and when they do occur how do we how have we built a community of support around that so that the people will want to reinvest and stay engaged rather than leaving or you know you know going off to the proverbial beach and disengaging and and that varies across
1: geography significantly and that's really what this is all about and that that diffusion of startup success that you talk about do you think that's going to accelerate now Post-pandemic, I mean, do you think being physically close to a start? Well, you know being physically close to the other actors in the startup community and, and an ecosystem is still as important as it was.
2: I think it's going to. I feel like I feel like distributed work is. There's been a permanent shift on that, at least in the United States. Our cities are unsustainable to a degree you know cities in europe are unsustainable but they're just completely configured in a different way i mean the san francisco bay area los angeles they're almost unlivable they don't have the right infrastructure so i feel like there's a at least a permanent shift in some of that activity but we have to remember that even the people who have moved who are moving to smaller cities second third tier cities they still spent years building relationships in those larger cities. They're going to have a meaningful relationship with those places. I think... I mean, I don't want to be remote 100% of the time. I don't want to yeah. work out of my house. So I actually like the model of you know whether my, whether my colleagues sit next to me on a daily basis is irrelevant to me so long as we have the foundation and we come together when it's needed i I do believe that human element is important, having said that, if you're an early stage company on rapid product iteration cycles, that's hard uh to be distributed i mean i think it's i feel like having having if as long as i think it's okay to have a distributed company but if but if as long as it's by teams, especially having engineering teams where people are completely isolated, that's really hard to do rapid iteration. So I don't think that will be permanent. Another thing is, you know, there's been all these announcements from big tech companies in San Francisco, like Twitter and Facebook saying, "Okay, permanent remote work. I, the key indicator for me will be what happens to the executives. If the executives don't leave, then it won't be lasting because it's a strong signal that if you want to be promoted in the company, you still need yeah. to be at headquarters. And that's been going on for a long time anyway, right? All these satellite companies. Um, I know people in Europe feel that strongly that a lot of these American tech companies, like you know, you're always second class citizen if you're in one of the satellite offices. So we'll see if that evolves. So yeah, I, I think more importantly though that we've just gone through a massive shift in society in society and the structure of our economy entrepreneurs are best positioned to respond to that some people are being forced into entrepreneurship maybe for the first time so i actually see a huge explosion in entrepreneurship happening overall and i'm incredibly optimistic about that
1: you, you wrote quite a lot about you know having a creative class a spirit spirit of rebellion you know, and there's that great case study of, of Jerusalem in the book, right, where, where, they, where the guys visited by a public official saying, oh, we're going to seed 200 startups. And he said, you'd be better off seeding 200 rock bands, right? Is it, is it do you need to create the draw to bring pe- people in that will then, you know, that will then like create uh, the foundations for community or startup community? I think it's extremely important.
2: You know, in general, people go to th- places for three reasons. They go to a place for work or opportunity. Second, they go to a place for family or personal connections. And the third is that they go to a place desirable, right? So, the, you know, if you're a place that's lacking on opportunities, you know, family is sort of... There's nothing you can do about that, <laughs> right? Family and personal connections. But the third thing, making it a desirable place, Absolutely especially now if you're trying to attract you know people from the entrepreneurial class, knowledge workers that can be you know we've proven can more or less be based anywhere. If you have an airport or rail links that can get you into those major markets in a reasonable way and the communities are desirable, they have social, natural, cultural amenities, I think that's what people want. So I think it's hugely important and also you know. Additionally, this is something that people in the traditional institutional actors—the governments, the other civically minded—you know—corporations and universities and so on—can do something about. It's a little more in their lane. One of the things that I tell governments often is, you know, they they so desperately want to do the exciting things. You know, let's let's create a you know let's create a huge startup campus. Let's do you know they I, I think like. Going to ribbon cutting ceremonies is like a tangible thing that's exciting and fun. But then it's like, just stay in your lane. Like, is this a great city to live in? Uh, Paris, fix your traffic congestion problem. You know, (laughs) like, why don't you start there? Uh, You know, taxation, regulation, all that. But a big part of it is, you know, making it, making your community a place where, um, where people with options want to be. Big part of that for me is a healthy and vibrant small business sector, right? Quality restaurants and bars and that sort of thing. And so, yeah, I think it's hugely important. I can say it eight different ways, but absolutely, yes.
1: Yeah, and I think the the, the other sort of proxy sometimes for for success is to, is to build infrastructure, right? But the infrastructure won't bring companies by itself. No.
2: Well, today's infrastructure is
1: what high speed internet
2: and interesting places to work.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because I think, yeah, the definition of infrastructure is often defined in industrial age terms, right? Which is we need new roads, we need new railways. Whereas I think you're right. I mean, the the actual kind of conception of what the infrastructure should be is probably hasn't been updated, right? In many politicians' mind. Yeah, absolutely. What happens for those cities and those countries that can't, create a vibrant startup community
2: they're probably falling behind if they haven't already entrepreneurship in general is important for a more vibrant economy and community creates jobs cri- provides better services increases productivity in normal times you know creative destruction even in the small business sector is super important right um kind of old tired businesses move out while young exciting ones move in everything's updated and reflects the current demands of consumers and businesses right so we want a healthy amount of that in general so so if we focus on just the you know innovation driven businesses they're the ones innovation driven startups are shepherding in new industries new sources of growth Oftentimes, economic development initiatives are focused on the industries of the past and present, right? Cluster analyses, you probably heard that yeah. terminology used. Those are, those are the strengths yesterday and today. But what, what entrepreneurs do is they look for sources of new opportunity. So, again, can't guarantee success, but a healthy amount of that going on is really good for the long-term prospects. Not only for those companies if they achieve success... But for the entire community, right? One of the best books on economics I've read in the last decade uh, is written by, it's called The New Geography of Jobs, written by Enrico Moretti, who's an Italian economist at UC Berkeley. And his overall thing is look, let's divide the world into two types, of, let's divide the economy into two types of businesses. There's the non tradable sector, which produces local goods and services. This can be high high value, low value, you know, everything from taxis and barbers, you know, all the way up to, you know, to lawyers and doctors. Uh, The tradable sector produces goods and services that can be bought and sold all around the world. Everything from, you know, agriculture, food to high-tech, innovative sectors. Within the tradable sector is the innovative sector. And his whole thing is, you know, you don't have to work at a high-tech company or, you know, a knowledge... A knowledge-intensive company, with that's tapping into huge global markets, in order to benefit from that. What you need to do, if you're destined to be a barista or a school teacher, is you want to live in a community that has some amount of that going on, because those are well-paying jobs. They're bringing those businesses are bringing revenue and and so income and wealth into that region that is then spent to support the local local services economy. So you want a healthy amount of that um, in your community to propel, yeah, to propel long-term economic vitality and opportunities for people.
1: What's your view on Europe? Do you think Europe has enough vibrant startup communities? Do you think Europe is building enough sort of digital age businesses to be successful or, or to have the same level of su- success in the future that it's had over the last um, you know few decades?
2: Yes, absolutely. You know... I've mostly spent time in London. London to me feels, you know, top of the top of the stack in terms of not only entrepreneurial activity but collaborative spirit, you know. I feel like people are generally helpful, interesting, people are weird, there's that spirit of rebellion going on. Um I can't say too much about many of the other places, but what I will say is, you know, the US is at an inflection point, and we're definitely because of our political dysfunction, our inability to address major challenges, putting aside outright hostility to to high, to foreigners, including high skilled foreigners, we're losing our edge. We have a major election coming up, and you know I think the outcome of that could have a huge impact on the future of innovation here as a talent magnet. Another great book to read on that. Uh, Harvard Business School professor Bill Kerr wrote a book called "The Gift of Global Talent," and it's documenting how the U.S. has been, by leaps and bounds, a major beneficiary of foreign talent. You know, foreign talent has driven our innovation economy to a very large degree. So, you know, if you're a if you're a Europe European founder, entrepreneur, investor in the U.S., you know, depending on your Embeddedness in this country, and you know you've had enough of our response to COVID. Maybe you spent the last four months back at home, and you realize, hey, life is better here because it is. I think I think the European lifestyle is 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 much better overall, and so you know, I I think that's you know that's one dynamic at play: the U.S. losing its relative uh, position. Mm-hmm. And as I said before, there's there's a lot of, you know, Europe is a great place to live. I feel like that makes it a talent magnet. And a lot of progress has been made in a short amount of time. I think that that's one of the things people forget. There's a book called, that I read, called 100 Years of History in Silicon Valley, something like that. I forget the exact title. And it talks about how it was a 100-year unfolding. You know, this didn't happen overnight. People really do forget that. I think the first venture firm was founded, proper venture firm was in 1959, right? And the evolution of Silicon Valley's uh, technological prowess goes back much further. I recently realized that that book was written in 1996. So now we're 125 years in the making, right? As I mentioned before, we basically, we more or less can't document the presence of venture capital in Europe before, you know, the mid nineties, really early nineties. Now there was some, but it was very disparate. So, you know, that's kind of a lot of progress in a short amount of time. So I, you know, I just want to frame it in that. So people are mindful of how much has moved forward at a very, very rapid pace.
1: Just to revisit the U S election for a second. Right. So, I mean, you paint this as a really pivotal moment, which I think most people would, would agree with. right? Do you think that entrepreneurs in the US, particularly those that have been very, very successful and have major influence, do you think they've been sufficiently political or or vocal?
2: I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush because people are so different, but I think the general bent for American entrepreneurs is to be more conservative politically. The definition of that has shifted dramatically hardcore libertarian streak, of course, the irony of that emanating from Silicon Valley is, you know, how propped up Silicon Valley was and has been, well, certainly in the beginning stages, how propped up it had been by government spending. And some of these entrepreneurs, you know, Elon Musk in particular, has been a huge direct beneficiary of that. So... You know, question, have they been outspoken enough? I don't know. It's like, it's kind of all over the map. You know, I I do see the private sector actually advancing cultural and moral causes more so than our government right now. Um, It's something I've actually been sort of thinking about lately that it's remarkable how outspoken companies like Nike have had to be around... You know, around the social—sorry—the oh, racial inequity crisis happening. Well, I would say happening in America today. It's actually been happening for the last 450 years. I was watching a Major League Baseball game this past weekend, and on the—I know most people in Europe might not be familiar with baseball—but on the pitching mound, there's a logo. It was hashtag BLM, Black Lives Matter, and the fact that sports, major businesses. You know, so many segments of, of our society are coming forward in, in support of that. And yet, our own government is actually hostile to that. You know, a portion of our government is hostile to that. I think that's pretty remarkable, really. The, a lot of businesses feel the need to fill that void. So, yeah, so, I, you know, I don't know, that's kind of a meandering uh, answer, but it's a little bit all over the map. But I think in general, you know, people are stepping up. So, I'm incredibly optimistic about the future of entrepreneurship in America, in Europe, globally. I think entrepreneurs are going to have more opportunities than ever coming out of this crisis during this crisis. And we're going to need that. I would encourage the entrepreneurs themselves, people working directly with them, whether you're in consulting, podcasting, writing, Mentoring, investing, whatever, wherever you are in that entrepreneurial stack, to be more collaborative and helpful. Right. I think we've learned the importance of community by having it taken away from us. In some ways, my community is stronger. I will feel so much more gratitude for to be in the physical presence of others in the future. But it's really this positive sum mindset you know we talk about give first right help people without the expectation of receiving something in return immediately it's not like it's not naive altruism you, you expect to get something but you don't know when or from whom and in what form you know you're i believe that if the i believe if the global startup community is stronger i believe if entrepreneurs are you know doing better and that I will benefit from that too, because I'm a part of this system. This is like a time to just be grateful for each other, have humility and build community. And you'll be much better off if you do that.
1: I'm into that. Ian, thank you very much for your time. That was a great discussion.
2: Thanks, Ben. It was, uh, it was a pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you for listening to Structural Shifts by Aperture. To learn more about us, visit Aperture.co. We are strategy for the networked age. Until next time.